0: This is Mainspring Family Wellness, where transformation takes root. This podcast is for parents pursuing
1: both personal growth and family wellness. We will cover relevant topics that help us
0: reflect, make educated choices, and parent effectively. My name is Kristen Perlmutter. I'm an educator, a philanthropist, and a mother of three who is passionate about personal growth and seeing families at their optimal wellness. And I'm
1: Dr. Jenna Flowers a marriage and family therapist, author of The Conscious Parent's Guide to Co-Parenting, speaker, and mother of three. Welcome to Mainspring Family Wellness. Today we have our guest, Debbie Reber. She's a parenting activist, New York Times bestselling author, keynote speaker, and the founder of Tilt Parenting a website, top podcast, and social media community for parents who are raising differently wired children. Her newest book, Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World, came out in June of 2018. And after living abroad in the Netherlands for the past five years, Debbie, her husband and 15-year-old son, recently moved back to New York City. Hi, Debbie. It's great to have you here. Hi, I'm happy to be here. Okay, well, first of all, you are truly an inspiration to so many parents with exceptional children. Can you share with our audience a little more about how your journey began with Asher?
2: Sure. Yeah, so I kind of came into this work honestly, in that uh, I discovered when my son was probably in preschool, we started to get some signs that he was moving through the world in a different way from from his peers and we didn't know what that meant, but we knew that trying to figure out a path for education and and just kind of figuring out what what our life was going to look like in raising this child who was had some atypical characteristics um, and figuring that out, we realized this is, a pretty lonely journey. So mm-hmm. when a when a parent is raising a child who isn't fitting into the box or uh, has is on a different developmental timeline, it can be really overwhelming to even know where to start. And so in going through this journey and trying to figure out how to best support our son and figure out that educational path and just know what this was going to look like, I realized there are a lot of parents like me out there and it's actually not okay for us to feel like we're going through this alone or that our kids are in some way outliers. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, ultimately wanted to create a community so that we could find each other because the statistics show that at least 20% of kids are in some way neurologically atypical, which could be anything from ADHD, to autism, to being gifted, to having sensory issues. And so I just really wanted to figure out a way to connect us so that we don't have to experience so much kind of pain and overwhelm and isolation as we're moving through this.
0: Wow, that's Great. excellent. So Debbie, were, were you yourself uh, raised to be highly resilient as a child? That is the first
2: time I've ever been asked that question. (laughs) Well, you know,
1: I think we're asking it because we were so inspired by your proactivity to bring parents together and to create these communities. Mm -hmm. We imagined as we were reading your book, this has to be a highly
0: resilient person. Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. We just kind of wanted to get an idea of where you were coming from.
2: Yeah. I honestly, I don't know. I would say that that it wasn't I wasn't kind of raised this way specifically. Um, I was very much left to do my own thing as mm. a kid, and but I always felt very pulled to to, to impact to, to help things. I was that kid who at eight was volunteering and would say, "I want to change the world someday." Mm. So I think I was I was wired that way, and my work before I got into this parenting space, you know, I have a couple different uh, histories of my career mm-hmm. in kids TV and, and writing books for many, many years. But always I was involved, whether personally or professionally, in trying to share information that would support marginalized populations or support people who weren't thriving. So for many years, I worked with organizations that worked with at-risk uh Teenagers, homeless teenagers. I worked with for care and UNICEF, so working in developing countries and those children who are at risk. And so I just, I've always been pulled to this. And so Mm. when I, you know, discovered that I was raising a child who, and that we as a family were struggling, it just seemed I was called to do this. Okay, I've got to take these skills that I have to create content and to curate information and to research and share in a way that other people can can easily access it mm-hmm. and and pivot and 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 you know work with this within this new uh, space, this new parenting space. So I didn't feel like I had a choice, I mm-hmm. guess I should say. I've, yeah. I've always created what I what I needed or, or what I felt other communities needed if I had the power to make an impact. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Would, yeah. You, would you say that as a society, we are actually the ones making it taboo to be atypical?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think I talk about this a lot until parenting and in the manifesto that I wrote when I first launched it in 2016. You know, we very much have this parenting paradigm that values conformity and it values mm-hmm. fitting in and it, and it, it, there's a lot of shame and guilt involved for parents who try to do things their own way or whose kids don't fit into the box or whose kids are perceived as disruptive and, and challenging or their behavior is judged. And so I really think it's a, it is a systemic problem and we'll, we'll see it everywhere in our education system, in our, in the media in just the parenting culture that we're all a part of. So it is something I believe really has to be shifted. And mm-hmm. that's what I'm, I'm hoping that Tilt Parenting is being a part of just changing that conversation. Definitely. Mm-hmm.
0: I think it has. And what are the biggest struggles you've identified as a parent and, and as an expert for families raising atypical children?
2: I think... Systemically, one of the first problems is there is no roadmap, and it's very difficult to access information, and it can be very expensive to go down this route. So kind of right away, when we recognize our kid is in some way struggling, usually it shows up in school. And so often parents find themselves not knowing even where to begin. Sometimes pediatricians don't know where to to point us towards. Um, Getting assessments for things, even like dyslexia, which can be really identified quite early, Mm -hmm. is something a lot of parents have to fight for, for a school district to test because it costs money. Mm -hmm. And so then we have parents doing private testing, which, you know, a full neurological assessment can be thousands of dollars and many insurance companies don't cover that. So that is one systemic problem is just that it can be very hard to even access the information and support that we need. There is the kind of personal toll that it takes on parents and families because, as I said earlier, going down this path when you kind of realize that you're on a different journey than Mm. most of your peers, that can feel really isolating and overwhelming and rough. You know, oftentimes the behavior. The way that, that these challenges manifest, especially when kids are younger, is in behavior that can be really intense. And so to to feel like you're alone in this and then also having a, a home life that can be, can feel not so great and cozy all the time yeah, is can, really difficult. Can
1: you speak a little more into that? Because I know that you're married and, and, and you, you folks have Asher. How do you guys help to take care of your marriage?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question, and it comes up a lot in my community. So, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges is trying to keep communication open. In in my community, I would say about ninety percent of the people who participate and, and consume the content that I create are moms. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what I hear is that a lot of the their partners are not on the same page and that can be really frustrating to have two parents who are at two different places. So, you know, for us personally, my husband and I worked with a couple's counselor who actually specialized in supporting parents who are raising atypical kids, which was great. Wow, that's and so good. That mm-hmm. it was so great. And it, and it was really necessary because we were experiencing this differently. And I was, as the one I was homeschooling my child at the time, I was the one kind of in charge of, of the day to day and the support and accommodations and therapy and all of that. And my husband was behind, you know, he just Mm -hmm. wasn't up to speed on so many things. And that created a lot of conflict. So, you know, I think it is important that, that both parents kind of commit to working together, and, mm-hmm. and I also try to tell the the parent who is kind of more involved to not expect the parent the other parent to be to get one hundred percent on the same page or caught up or, or to to even process this the way you would want them to. I think it's really about seeing the other partner from a place of compassion mm-hmm. and understanding and and not and non-judgment of of what they're experiencing. But then, committing to showing up and c- doing the work and checking in every day and making sure that you're continuing to keep the lines of communication open so you can really be in alignment with them.
1: Yeah, I think when I've met other parents that have kids that are atypical, you know, when one is pregnant, you don't necessarily t- think about what if my child's going to be atypical, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. sometimes the margins for, or the bandwidth Mm-hmm. for couples isn't really set up for having a child with atypical features yeah right and so everything kind of has to change along with it. this adjustment period and and probably changing of your, the mentality and even how fast a pace of life everyone was carrying
0: yeah mm-hmm. definitely
2: yeah there are a lot of just a, that expectations not meshing with reality it's right. kind of where our most of the pain lies. Right. And, mm-hmm. and absolutely that is work that, that a couple would really be served to work on together, especially because often as we have different expectations, even within our, our partnership of what this is going to look like.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: So Debbie, you talked about this a little bit
0: in your book, but struggling with the judgment of other parents is you know, such a real issue. And I love what you said about being the same parent in public as you are behind closed doors and, you know, be real and own it and others will find comfort in that. Mm-hmm. What do you do when you feel judged as a parent?
2: This used to really trigger me, honestly, because I just, I'm super aware of what other, how how I'm being perceived by other people in, in public situations. And when you do have a child who might be doing something that is deemed inappropriate for the environment or whatever, and you're getting looks from other people, I used to really feel that. And, and I hated the way it made me feel I would be embarrassed or humiliated, I might make some really bad parenting decisions in that moment,
0: Mm -hmm. kind
2: of to save face. So you know, the first thing I had to do was really just recognize that and try to uncover for me, what is it? that is sparking that in me. Why do I care what other people think? And, and I did a lot of work around that so that I could kind of let that go. Mm. And so, so now when I am in a public situation, you know, or I, or I'm feeling as if I'm being judged, I I really can, I notice I still have that initial reaction, but I kind of notice it. I'm like, oh, there's that, there's that feeling again. Well, you know, I can acknowledge it but I don't have to take it on. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of say, you know what, it's okay. Nothing, nothing to see here. Move along. I say that to myself (laughs) and I just kind of proceed with my day. You know, Mm -hmm. I I really, I recognize now that other people's judgment is often because it's triggering some discomfort in them and, Mm -hmm. and it's forcing them to consider their own parenting or their own you know, things that they wouldn't be okay with. And that's really not my problem. So I guess I would say it's a lot of self-coaching in the moment, but mm-hmm. it gets it gets easier with time. Yeah. And I think every
0: parent struggles with that at some point. I mean, I certainly do, feeling like you're being judged for a, a you know, sometimes a split second decision that you've made mm-hmm. as a parent. And um, but I think that there's also something comforting and in, in seeing other people in those situations, you're like, okay, I'm not the only one.
2: Yes. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I know yeah. it's not terrible when you feel comfortable yeah. because you're seeing someone else's <laughs> child having a meltdown. Right? Yeah. It is,
0: but it's the truth. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, we both really loved the making of the list of unrealistic expectations mm-hmm. for our kids that you talk about. Um, and we think this is probably an exercise all parents should do, but could you explain the process a little more? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, sure. So, you know, we talked earlier just about this, these expectations that we have about what our life would look like. And I think that extends to, to who our kids should be. Mm. And especially when it comes to things like our child's timeline, you know, I think we live in a culture where we're kind of primed to compare and contrast where our child is in relation to their peers. Are they at grade level in this? Are they as mm-hmm. social as so-and-so's friends? And, you know, mm-hmm. it, it really just goes on and, and we will, as parents continue continue to be triggered by these ideas that we have. And I, and I would venture to say that most times that we feel kind of a pang of, of concern or worry about something related to our child, it's because we're making some aspect of their current environment or current life mean something that's probably not true, but we need to examine it. So I encourage parents to kind of make a list of the things that they believe must be true about their child. Like, my child needs to be able to, you know, read by first grade, uh, my child needs to have. A good friend in order to get through middle school. Uh, you know, my child needs to get into this school or else, you know, XYZ won't happen. So mm-hmm. it's really important to kind of ask ourselves, what are those beliefs that that we have? What are those beliefs that I'm holding on to? Because we're gonna parent from those places. Mm-hmm. And so if we don't examine them and actually dispute. Well, actually, is it true that, you know, my child needs to have, you know, this close knit circle of friends to survive middle school? Not necessarily. You know, if we can kind of create some looseness around these beliefs that we're just moving full steam ahead with mm-hmm. and, and not feel so tethered to, you know, what we're making them mean, then we can actually see what's really going on and experience a lot more peace in our day to day.
0: Mm hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So um, I wanted to talk about siblings. I know you've covered this in in your podcast, but, you know, it's very common in families with a child with special needs to require more energy and time. And um, what would your advice be to families with more than one child? How do they, you know, equally care for the other children in the family while giving um, the atypical child the special you know dedication and devotion that they need.
2: Yeah, I hear about this, you know, challenge from a lot of people in my community, and I and I just need to say up front, I only have one child, so I don't mm. speak to this from personal experience. But I've covered it on my podcast a few times, um, and certainly talk with people about this. And you know, you mentioned the word equal, and I think that is something that that people need to consider. It's not really about equal time, Mm -hmm. that it's about making sure that each child has what they need. And so every child's needs are different. And that is where I hear a lot of parents get kind of hung up is feeling like everything needs to look the same across the board. Mm -hmm. And that's not really realistic when you have a child that has some unique needs and might require more uh, accommodations or support. So I think kind of, thinking about it's not about this equality, but it's more making sure that every child has something specific that they need. And so what I know a lot of parents do is just make sure that for that neurotypical sibling, that they have special things that are just for them, making Mm -hmm. sure that they have activities or experiences where it's just the, the two of them you know, the parent and that child. So they they have their own unique thing as well. I think that that sibling relationship can be really challenging because, you know, some siblings can be really upset with their their atypical sibling, right? Because of some of the behavior they may bear the brunt of. And then there are other siblings who feel this great sense of responsibility to protect them, which is a lot for a kid to take on as well. So, you know, I think... Carving out that unique relationship with each child, not trying to make it equal across the board, but also as a family, mm-hmm. really talking a lot about this stuff, having open communication. Uh, you know, making sure that the culture of the family is one that is that is about personal development, personal growth, and 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 acceptance, and and just that open communication. That's
1: mm-hmm. so beautiful. Can you actually speak a little more into? the discussion of diagnosis Mm -hmm. with, with the family and um, how do you talk about the diagnosis with your kids?
2: Yeah, this is another issue that I get asked about a lot because there are a lot of parents who don't want to share a diagnosis with their child because they're concerned about their child having a label maybe that making them feel worse about who they are or kind of embodying the stigma that is associated Mm -hmm. with that label. Right. And so, so I can't say this is the way to do it, but I am a believer in openness and transparency and normalizing these labels and the conversations, because I think, you know, it's just like mental health or, or any side, any kind of difference that has a stigma associated with it. When we don't talk openly, we perpetuate that it's a bad thing, you know? When we're talking, I always say this to parents, if you're having a conversation about your child, but you're in the other room on the phone and you're talking in hushed tones because you don't want your child to hear, our kids know what something's going on and Mm -hmm. they may make make it mean something really terrible. They must think, gosh, you know, maybe there's something really wrong with me if they can't even talk to me about it. So I am a proponent of normalizing these things, using the terminology. If there is a a label and just kind of talking about it, matter of factly, this is who we are, you know? Mm -hmm, Um, And I really believe, you know, not only does that serve the child to, to grow up kind of owning who they are and not thinking that it's a bad thing, but a just, the way that they're wired. But I think as a society, this is part of how we change this conversation because there, again, again, that, that 20% figure of differently wired kids, it's much higher than that. Mm. But we're all kind of hanging out in secrecy because we're afraid of what other people are gonna think or that our child's gonna have a target on their back or won't be accepted. But if we all started talking openly about these things, then we couldn't be marginalized anymore. There's just too many of us. Yeah,
1: yeah something I've noticed um, when I, I see kids that are atypical in my practice and then you know, at school, they can often feel lonely. Mm-hmm. They don't have maybe as many friends or they're having a hard time socially. I'm wondering, Debbie, if you could speak a little more into that to help parents understand like, what kind of next steps could we do to support our kids or mm-hmm. to support the child in developing more, community for themselves.
2: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, again, I think that open communication is really important and the earlier we can start it, the better. And that includes open communication with our, our, our child's friends, or, you know, if they're in preschool, the other parents, like, and if a child has a play date, like, Hey, this could happen. Here's what you do, you know, just kind of talking about this stuff instead of, crossing fingers and hoping that nothing goes wrong because you know I believe that when especially when kids grow up neurotypical kids grow up understanding who these other children are and recognizing that you know oh that's not You know, Ryan's not trying to be obnoxious. Ryan like cannot, his body needs to move a lot. That's because of the, of his ADHD. That's how he's wired. And that's actually what makes him be able to come up with this really cool creative ideas. You know, if we can kind of talk about these things with our kids and I, and I, this is something I challenge parents of neurotypical kids to do is have these conversations I feel like those kids would then grow up as allies to differently wired Mm -hmm. children. I mean, that's kind of my dream. Maybe it's a little naive, but I think it can, it can happen. I've seen it happen. And so, you know, I I really do think that parents of neurotypical children have a lot of power in this paradigm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, talking with compassion about, you know, if your child comes home and, talks about another student who who blurts out answers all the time because they they just feel a really strong need to share you know that might be as a result of how they're wired and so talking about it that way instead of perpetuating like wow that's super annoying what's wrong with that kid you know um so so that is a really big thing i think if we can just kind of continue to have these these conversations and and I encourage parents of kids who are differently wired to, to help them really own who they are so that they can eventually advocate for themselves so they can speak their truth when they're hanging out with other friends or they're in a classroom and they need something. You know, That's kind of what we eventually want these kids to be able to do is to know themselves so well and feel so comfortable in who they are that they can ask for what they need so that they can thrive just the way every other child gets to. Mm
0: Yeah.
2: So your, your podcast
0: tilt parenting has created a movement of um, parenting groups, tilt groups. And can you, you know, speak about this and how parents can get involved and um, how we can all as a culture, as a society, become more inclusive and understanding?
2: Yeah. So when I was doing the book tour for Differently Wired, I kept, you know, meeting parents who, first of all, were sometimes knew each other in their communities, like would see each other around at pick up for soccer or PTA meetings, but they had no idea the other Parents were raising differently wired kids mm-hmm. until they bumped into each other at my book talk, which was pretty oh, wow. funny. Yeah. But so some of them decided even in that at that event, we're gonna start meeting, we're gonna create a little group. And I started getting requests to support in-person communities. So, um, so I've created some resources on the Tilt Parenting website. I call it a Tilt Together Starter Kit. So if parents do wanna create an on the ground, regional in-person group, they have you know some support, some ideas for how they might run a group. I've created a Facebook group just for leaders of Tilt Together groups to find each other and share best practices. There's now over 35, uh, actually it's more than that, like 45 groups happening in four countries. That's outstanding. Most, most in That's the great. U.S., but yeah, and it they're completely parent-led. They're volunteer, and my role is just to to support. If I can, mm-hmm. um, and they're all different, so that has been so exciting just to see mm-hmm. people finding each other, and and that's you know I I do feel like this is the the movement that is happening. You know, I think when I started this, a lot of people who discovered Tilt and and started listening to the podcast were kind of they were down the road in this journey and they were so desperate for help. And they were so happy to finally find someone that was talking about their experience. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting now is that, you know, the podcast has been around for three and a half years, that people who are now finding us are just at the very beginning of their journey. Mm -hmm. And this already exists for them. So they're Mm -hmm. starting this with the insight and support of this community, which is really awesome. Like that makes me so happy because none of, you know, when I was parenting a four-year-old and very much in the weeds and had nowhere to turn, this just didn't exist. So it's been really cool to see, see the way that it's grown.
0: Wow. Congratulations on everything you've accomplished so far. This is, it's truly amazing. And we're hoping too, that uh,
1: through this podcast, there are going to be some listeners in the Orange County area that would want to create a Tilt Parenting group because Krista and I are firm believers mm-hmm. in bringing parents together and creating community. And we're just so excited about what you have brought to the world, Debbie, because it's a it's a real necessary need for so many parents and kids that are going to really benefit from um, parents coming together and dreaming up but then also actively pursuing
0: inclusiveness for their their children
2: yes yeah awesome thank you for
0: inspiring
2: us debbie thank you and i i will share there is um i'm just looking on the tilt together facebook group or my website it looks like there is a south orange county Mm -hmm. is that where you where are you located we're we're
0: not we're more north Orange County, but oh, you're New, north Newport okay. Beach, yeah. But that's that's not too far South, or- <laughs> South yeah. Orange County.
2: There's South yeah. Orange County, There is one in Orange County, but that, I know that's a big county. But um, but we have a Tilt Together Facebook group, and that is where a lot of parents are. There's thousands of people on there now who will just say, "Hey, I'm located here. I'm looking for an OT, or who else is." local i'm looking to connect with another parent and so that is happening in that group which has been really cool wonderful really great
1: well once again debbie thank you so much for taking the time to be on mainspring family wellness and for our listeners her book is differently wired and also check out her podcast tilt parenting
2: thank you debbie thank you so much for having me